This podcast is brought to you by the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law with funding support from the NOAA Sea Grant College Program. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or the U.S. Department of Commerce. Welcome back to the final episode of the Law on the Half Shell podcast's second season. Law on the Half Shell is brought to you by the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And I'm this season's host, Law Center Ocean and Coastal Law Fellow Zachary Klein. This season's theme has been COVID and coastal resilience. And we've spent the last eight episodes exploring every nook and cranny that this season's theme has to offer us. At least, it sure feels like it. Before closing the lid on this season of Law on the Half Shell, however, me and my coworkers, who you've been hearing from all season, Stephanie Showalter-Otz, Catherine Janessy, Tara Bowling, and Olivia Deans, have just a little more that we'd like to share with you. Come and join us as we chat about what we learned while making this season of Law on the Half Shell, ranging from surprises to longer lasting impressions. Without further ado, Let's dive on into that conversation. COVID has been described by many at this point as a black swan event. And I was just curious first if anyone had thoughts about the pros and cons of of regulating and governing around black swan events. And then if anybody had any examples of that flexibility or or that lack of flexibility and its impact so far? I think COVID-19 just really highlighted how crucial resiliency is. And now this is a term um, in our, you know, Sea Grant world that's used a lot. It can mean different things to different people. If you're an ecologist, Resilience refers to the ability of an ecosystem to kind of respond to shocks and kind of come back to uh, like its original status. But I think there's just a need for businesses, government, communities, individuals to be able to adapt to changes. And of course, that's easy to say and harder to do in the moment. Unfortunately, some coastal communities have had a lot of experience with this, with storms and hurricanes. And resilience doesn't necessarily mean you come back the same way after a shock. But I think the oyster aquaculture experience really showed that 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 was an industry, as I mentioned, was built around the half shell market. And there were other markets for oysters, but that was really the focus and and where uh, most people were encouraged to uh, sell their product. So in a sense, they had put all their eggs in one basket. And while we should have foreseen the possibility of a pandemic coming, you know, I don't know that anyone really would have foreseen restaurants across the country being shut down all at the same time. But the agencies, extension agents and others working uh, with the seafood sector probably should just keep in mind that, you know, if you're focused all in one market or one product supply chain, 
any shock can really disrupt what you're able to do. And um, we need mechanisms that can make it easier for people to kind of shift between uh, sectors or markets. I was going to say that, you know, that black swan event was very similar to a concept we see as environmental layers, which is the precautionary principle. Um, and so should we be kind of regulating with the what kind of worst case scenario in mind? And so do we want to be prepared for something like a global pandemic to hit? Or are we willing to kind of take the risk that it's not going to be our time, that a once in a century pandemic is going to come in and take us over? And so in environmental law, that planning for the worst case scenario or that precautionary principle to kind of regulate with thinking that something bad is going to maybe happening in the future. You know, it's really hard to get across policy-wise. It's not usually adopted. And I think with COVID, you know, the government definitely has thought about, you know, dealing with the pandemic from the infectious disease side, but I'm not sure everyone was really prepared, as Stephanie was saying, for this vast economic impact that it had and that anyone really thought that everybody was going to have to shut down completely. And it's an interesting line that gets walked there, right? Because on the one hand, Uh, A lot of people might complain that the precautionary principle is too restrictive and it limits economic opportunities for so long as that black swan event or whatever that is being prepared against doesn't happen. But then if you don't prepare for it and one happens, the economic consequences are devastating. So balance seems to be a theme that's emerging here already, balance between public and private between local, state, and federal. And in this respect, COVID is no different either. So uh, I was curious how the experience compared to what you expected, if there were any surprises that you had along the way, and big takeaways more generally, whether it was um, in a strictly legal sense, and it's it's okay if it's not. Um, Most people's minds even lawyers, you know, there was a whole side of COVID that existed outside of our work. And I was curious what your impressions of the pandemic and and of recording this season about the pandemic's impact on the coast in particular, how, how it all sort of shook out for you. My first thought, so uh, I took a pretty circular route (laughs) to law school. Um, When I came out of high school, um, I started in a marine biology program. I wanted to work with the whales, uh, train them at SeaWorld. Uh, That was not, that that dream did not come true, but I, I ended up as a history major. And so when I started working on the podcast episodes, or even before that, when we were doing our research, you know, a lot of attention in the news surrounding COVID-19 made reference to the Spanish flu in the early 1900s. But I remember when we got our uh, question from Alaska Sea Grant, uh, which related to safety of fishing crews, um, and maybe it was just my medieval history degree kicking in, but I'm like, what about smallpox? You know, like, what about these diseases? I mean, didn't we have, you know, these issues before? And wow, did that lead me down a rabbit hole of uh, 
searching early, very early, like 1800, late 1800 cases um, related to quarantine of ships, um, either for smallpox or yellow fever or uh, cholera. And what really struck me after that research is the issues raised by COVID, um, at least with respect to uh, cruise ships and fishing vessels are really not new that we've been wrestling with the this issue, this balance between protecting the safety of the port community and the health and safety of the individuals that are on the vessel that may have fallen ill and need care and uh, sympathy uh, for and, and need to dock to um, take care of their uh, needs and and to be able to, to freely kind of move around the world. And so I guess that was like one thing that surprised me that in the beginning of the pandemic, everything felt so new and so stressful. And like, we've never dealt with this before. And actually we have just not on quite the scale that we were facing it now with such a globally interconnected world with respect to, to travel. I think on the opposite side of that coin, whereas in the beginning, everything felt very new and stressful. Now, as we go back and look at the beginning and the issues we were first looking at, it seems like, oh, okay, that's old hat. I can't believe we were dealing with this. You know, we've got, it's funny how quickly you become accustomed to an idea and how quickly things become the norm, you know, such as wearing masks and doing all these social distancing things and taking all these things into consideration. When we first were trying to come up with the topics for this season, I was a little bit worried of how to find enough content to tie COVID to like wastewater and drinking water in the Magnuson-Stevens Act. But I was pretty surprised that there are just so many issues and there were so many news articles out there about these topics. So I guess one of my takeaways was, you know, COVID has really permeated all parts of this industry and all of these different legal aspects we look at. Stephanie, isn't there an Outlander episode where there's smallpox and they burn the ship because yes, they're yes. telling Claire not to tell them that they have smallpox because they don't want to lose the entire. Yes. And if anybody watches Outlander, Claire is always going to get in trouble within 30 seconds of whatever she's doing. <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, they, they arrive in France and there is a sick crewman of a merchant vessel and she diagnoses him with smallpox. And yeah, the, the owner of the vessel and the other crew members, they don't want her to tell anybody because they know that they'll be quarantined. And actually, when she does tell the port officials, they burn the ship. Um, and so it cost, of course, the, the captain uh, a lot of money and the crew would most likely lose their jobs, right? They need to find another ship to work on. And then in the books and the TV show causes a whole long string of events <laughs> from that. But yeah, that really made me think. And um, there was a plague outbreak, the bubonic plague outbreak in Hawaii in 1900 from rats leaving a ship. And it, that was again, like I thought, well, that is actually, I mean, that is a, over a hundred years ago, but not that long ago when I think of the plague, <laughs> you know? So uh, it just really uh, kind of strikes home how vulnerable port 
communities are potentially to at least being the first, maybe they're our first line of defense uh, for some of these things. And um, they that's talked about a lot with invasive species because ships can carry plants and animals that are not native to the area or not indigenous to the area. I don't know what the right term is. <laughs> I get myself in trouble. <laughs> but uh, things like to move around on ships. And cholera um, was actually one of those. Cholera is, it, some classify that as an invasive species because it was not previously found in some port communities. And so there was a cholera outbreak in Alabama that was, was the first time um, that had happened and it was linked to a ship. I think like just in terms of COVID and us adjusting, it's just been kind of like a weird time warp. I don't know if we've ever mentioned to the listeners of this podcast that we've done it all completely remotely. And so why we keep saying, you know, oh, like I talk with Tara about these episodes, you know, um, mostly it's just been seeing each other on a Zoom screen. When COVID hit, I won't forget, I was during spring break. So like Stephanie, I went away. I dropped my dog off at my friends. They were talking about how when I was going to come back, it was going to be the Ole Miss LSU baseball weekend. And so both schools are huge baseball schools. So we were talking about Oxford, Mississippi, which is where most of us are located, is this small college town. And it was going to be, you know, this influx, you know, to tens and thousands of people coming in. And by the time I got back from my week trip, everything was shut down. And so how quickly kind of that happened. And I remember when I was driving back saying, oh, I might be able to come in the office in the afternoon. And we've never gone back to the office. I've never seen Zach again in person since March of 2020. We hired Olivia remotely. We've never seen her in person. And so it's odd, like how well I think as a team we've worked together, but how quickly we all kind of that resiliency have adapted to this kind of new normal of working with each other. Yeah. And in some ways we were lucky here at the National Sea Grant Law Center in the sense that we're attorneys. The legal world, thankfully, has went digital before the pandemic. We have a range of ages here, but when I uh, was in a first year of law school, they still made us go into the library to do research in actual books. And I have no idea how attorneys were able to do their jobs when they had to find a case just by looking at an index <laughs> in a law book. And so luckily uh, we did have online legal databases when I was in law school, but there was only one person in um, my class who brought a laptop. And in the 20 years since I've graduated, things have, have changed a lot, but because there are legal databases online, we were able to continue to do our work remotely because all we needed was a computer. But as Kathy said, we really did lose the interaction of popping into each other's offices and say, oh, I just found this crazy case. Can you believe this? Like, I found this case about a sailor who contracted smallpox and has this unbelievable adventure <laughs> in Alaska. And I so wanted to tell everybody about it. And there was nobody in my house to tell. <laughs> like I had to wait um, until we could get on Zoom to talk about that. So yeah, it has, I'm sure everyone else has had that experience. And so we, we are uh, lucky that our work could continue and that, and then I'm incredibly grateful that uh, we could continue 
our work and that we were here to answer questions and support others whose lives and jobs and work were being affected much more than ours were by both the pandemic and the programs that agencies were uh, rolling out to try to help them. I'm glad you mentioned that because it touches on what was the biggest takeaway for me. You very much spoke to the way our relationship with technology has changed. And I think what really struck me above all else is the degree to which our relationship with nature has changed. There are plenty of headlines now about how people are doing hiking more regularly than before as they are trying to get out of the house being cooped up um, due to the conditions caused by COVID. Plenty of headlines about all the COVID puppies and kittens. I am definitely guilty, kind of. I didn't seek my dog out. He sought me out as a stray, but definitely counts as a COVID dog. And whether it was in big ways, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of people are interested in the impact of COVID on the environment, or, or rather the, the impact that a lack of human activity that would have otherwise been caused in the absence of COVID how that's going to affect uh, the environment and, and our relationship with it. You know, another thing uh, with respect to to COVID and the environment that, that did not seem to get a lot of attention is at when restaurants were shut down and trying to stay viable businesses transitioning to takeout um, was very popular. But when you get food takeout, it's in styrofoam or other containers. And in the last uh, several years, there's been a lot of movement in some states and in local governments to reduce the use of plastic, uh, single use containers, straws, utensils, um, because of how much waste that is generated that ends up along our beaches, in our lakes and rivers, and in the ocean. Um, and addition to that, all of the use of masks and personal protective equipment, either gloves or what people felt comfortable using. And so uh, one of the, the things that kind of came up in uh, Sea Grant outreach initiatives, it was considered safe to go to the beach because it was outdoors and you could kind of spread out and get away from people. But there was concern if you had masks, uh, would they be properly disposed of? You know, would it's sometimes hard to find a garbage can, you know, depending on, you know, where you are at the beach. And so there were some educational infographics and campaigns designed to kind of show beachgoers wearing masks and then disposing of them properly in a, a garbage can so that that is not an additional burden on our coastal environment. So again, this balance, this need for masks and other PPE to keep us safe and to prevent transmission of the virus or minimize transmission of the virus, but that can generate an enormous amount of waste that then needs to be uh, addressed. And, and it's hard to, to really know where to go with that. Yeah. So um, in our interview um, with Jill at Ohio Sea Grant, she brought up a lot of good points. She's on the ground, they're doing beach cleanups, and she just talks about how much of this PPE she's seeing and, you know, what we can do about it. 
And one thing that had never occurred to me, and I feel kind of bad about this, is when you have a mask, a disposable mask, you have the loops, you're supposed to cut the loops, just like you cut the six pack cans of plastic so that sea life birds can't get caught in the circle. That had never occurred to me. So all these issues are coming, you know, another new issue coming up that we really hadn't thought about before COVID. I remember as like a 12 or 13 year old obsessively cutting all of our six pack rings apart. <laughs> My dad would get so like frustrated because he's like, we're, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, nowhere close to water. And so he was always like, who are you protecting? <laughs> we're going to put that in a garbage bag and it's going to go into a landfill. But I still did it just in case. I think it's important for our viewers and listeners to get a better sense of the National Sea Grant Law Center and what we do. One of the best ways we can do that is by explaining a little bit about us, our mandate, and uh, something called an advisory request and our advisory request service. Stephanie, would you please uh, share a little more about that for our listeners? Yeah, so our advisory service, uh, even though it says advisory in the title, um, it does not involve legal advice. It's a research service. Um, and so the National Sea Grant Law Center, because we are federally funded uh, with taxpayer dollars, we consider our mission to be non-advocacy, uh, meaning that we do not take on clients um, and we do not research the law in the sense of a how a traditional law firm or practitioner would to build a case for their client or to represent the client in, um, in to the best representation of the client. And so while we do research on federal laws and state laws and regulations, uh, we do not conduct that research trying to go towards a particular outcome for anyone. So we present kind of a, a general summary of the state of the law. Uh, we may highlight different positions that um, are happening like in litigation. So we may say, this is the position the government is taking. This is the position that a business um, is taking, but we don't have an opinion about which of those is appropriate. Um, or we just kind of say, these are the facts. And so one of the challenges during COVID and kind of throughout our work more generally uh, is that things became very polarized, politically polarized with COVID and Congress was taking a lot of action and different agencies, uh, whether it was the FDA or the CDC, uh, there was a lot of controversy surrounding CDC guidelines for cruise ships. And it is not the mission of the National Sea Grant Law Center to be advocates or to take positions positions about what is happening. And so throughout the podcast, you'll hear us refer to advisory requests where we were asked particular questions and we would do research to provide 
summaries about what the state of the law is or what certain requirements were in various programs. But we were not, uh, we and we do not practice law. We are licensed in particular states, but we do our work nationally. We are not licensed in every state. And so we are, are not able to practice law in the way that many of our listeners may think of when they think of a lawyer. And that would also definitely explain any times that we are being vague or um, if it ever seems like there's a hot button issue, but we are not ever hitting right on it. That is very likely the reason why, because we cannot. Yeah. And just to add on that, we don't take questions from the general public. So our advisory service, um, as Stephanie's described it, is for Sea Grant programs throughout the country that kind of give us questions. And so we can't have, you know, individual fishermen coming to us and asking us, what should I put in my paycheck protection program application? Um, but we can work with our Sea Grant programs to kind of give them background to help them get that, you know, information to help them out. But as Stephanie says, if they need actual representation, they have to kind of seek an attorney out elsewhere. All of the, the work and research and products that the National Sea Grant Law Center does are made available on our website for the public free of charge. And so we feel that it's a really important part of our legal research, education, and outreach mission to make sure that our research findings are widely accessible to all. And so that is, if anyone is interested in any of the work that we do, uh, I encourage you to check out our website, follow us on social media, and connect with us however you choose. From all of us here at the National Sea Grant Law Center, thank you so much for joining us for Law on the Half Shell Season 2, COVID and Coastal Resilience. We hope this has been an informative and entertaining look at the intersection of the law and COVID in the U.S., especially in our nation's unique coastal communities. Regardless of exactly what the future holds, the National Sea Grant Law Center will be there to continue keeping an eye on the legal issues playing out in coastal communities across the United States. You can keep up with these developments and find out about all the latest news and projects out of the Law Center by liking us and following us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And please be sure to check out our website at www.nsglc.olemiss.edu. Thanks again, everyone.